having someone who's got probably got more industry knowledge and commercial understanding of an industry but may not have the research skill. Challenge within there has been things like you might have junior researchers reporting into an industry expert who then feel they're not able to get the coaching and mentoring around methodology from the industry expert, or you bring the industry expert in and they're not able to run research projects because they don't have the skill. Guided by over 25 years in the data and research industry and assisting innovators with investment banking and advisory services, Seema Vasa brings you Data Gurus, a leading market research podcast that offers actionable insights for business acceleration and value creation. Join her as she speaks with key innovators in the space to bring you up to speed with the current state and the future of data analytics and data ecosystems. This is Data Gurus. Tired of market research solutions that put your project in a box? At Paradigm Sample, we approach market research support with customized and consultative solutions. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we're ready to assist. Let us know your needs, and we can customize a solution just for you. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa, your host. I'm so excited to welcome Chris Berry, who is the CEO of Human Listening at the Evolved Group. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Seema. Yep, I appreciate it. I know time differences are hard to manage. You're out in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, I am down in Melbourne. It's just ticked over 7 o'clock in the morning. Good. Hopefully you had some coffee before you joined. Definitely. So, Chris, you guys are doing some really interesting stuff and actually very relevant to a lot of the conversations that are going on in our space today around AI and the use of large language models. Before we dive into that, I would love for you to give a brief background about you and also the Evolve Group, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, background on myself, I've been in the industry for about for over 20 years now on both on the agency side working in a similar role to what I am now, looking after teams, running research for both corporate clients and supporting other agencies. And then I have spent time also in a number of different roles through both CPG companies and retailers. And really the focus there has been on you know, bringing the customer to life within the organization and telling those stories to help you know, the business make decisions and drive commercial outcomes. The agency itself that we're working for, the Evolve Group, has been around since 2010. We were founded in Melbourne. So we've got about 60 people on the ground here managing our client base and about 15 on the ground over in in the US managing our client base over there. There's a couple of people in other regions managing clients as well. Our heritage has come from a traditional market research consultancy. We've been using since day dot technology to to try to democratise data within organisations to help them make decisions. And back in the early days, we were developing different applications for different projects and then brought them together into a multi-tenant and SaaS platform in about 2015-16. It's called Human Listening. And then, and I know we'll get onto this in the discussion, then in about 2017, we took stock of you know where things were going within the research industry. And that was where the birth of conversational AI and its application in market research came about for us. Very exciting. So it feels like Evolve Group always had this premise of leveraging technology to improve the market research process. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And and the whole premise being about trying to drive a meaningful engagement with humans. 
so that we could, you know, elicit better responses, higher quality responses, and get more depth of insight from the data that we're collecting. So that really is our core focus and, you know, and our reason for being. That's incredibly refreshing because I think we're still dealing with very long surveys in the industry, tires, respondents out, but also understanding and balancing the fact that researchers need so much information. So it's nice to see the primary focus on the respondent and making sure that they have a positive experience. Yeah, and if you think about it, even from the respondent angle, and you probably see this yourself, we all receive, you know, dozens of emails every week with requests for feedback about all manner of experiences that we've had. So from our perspective, you know, trying to create those you know, methodologies that have that meaningful engagement will, you know, hopefully overcome some of those challenges. And the fact that people are really getting sick of having to, to reply and, and provide feedback on every single little experience that they have. Do you, do you think fundamentally people want to share their opinion? Yes and no. It depends. So what I've found over my career, and certainly if I go back to the, the retail side of things, from, now every retailer in the world will have a, some kind of customer experience program. But typically what you will find, if you think about that kind of idea of a customer coming to you to provide feedback, it's typically the extremes, right? Someone's got something really bad to say, so they want to jump online and respond, or they've got something really good to say, and it might have been an experience with you know, someone in the store and they want to make sure that they get acknowledged. So you'll often find that those extremes are, are really obvious. It's probably more difficult to either in categories where there's less connection with the product emotionally that you might have, or those ones where the experience was, you know, okay, it was fine, uh, but didn't go to either extreme. The analogy in my mind that sometimes is quiet quitting for employees, it's quiet defecting for customers when you get their feedback and they're slowly, you know, getting taken away by a competitor. Absolutely, absolutely. But within that, when you're doing your research, you can obviously do analytics off the back of that around germ propensity and what are those things that drive a customer out the door. And sometimes we were talking to a client a couple of weeks ago, and whilst you might have, say, if it was a rating on a 10-point scale around their experience, even if someone is effectively a passive and rating you, you know, relatively low, but not a great experience, that there may be other factors that draw them to continue to shop with you and not change their behavior. And it takes something pretty extreme for them to defect. So Really, I would encourage people to go out and do that kind of work and understand those outcomes and what drives, you know, what's going to drive success for your organization. It's so true. Okay, one small analogy, and then we'll get back into understanding what you guys are doing. But it's funny because I went to three different grocery stores this weekend. And the reality is that I knew the brand I wanted, and I couldn't get it at each specific grocery store. So I actually did the work and I'm like, what am I doing? Is it really worth it to do this? At the end of the day, it was because it was the products that I wanted. To your point, the switching costs are high, but if somebody really knows exactly what they want, they're willing to do the work to go get it. Absolutely. And that'll change by category as well. So in that particular category, you might have had a small repertoire of products that you're willing to consider. And there'll be others that are probably more commoditized where you're quite happy to switch and they're not going to, yeah, they're not going to make you move from one retailer to another. Okay. So let's talk about human listening. Obviously, you've come up with an innovative way to solicit feedback from customers, from people. Give us a little bit of an overview of the, your methodology and approach. Yeah. So the human listening platform itself has a bunch of different applications to run projects, right? We've got an application called Survey Shaper where we can script surveys similar to other tools 
that people have used. We've got ways that we can visualize data through dashboard publisher application, looking at tables through Data Explorer, et cetera. The key point of difference and key focus for us within most of our studies that we run is conversational AI and our conversational AI companion, Eve. Eve is effectively a tool by which where you might typically use where you'd have an open-ended question and effectively using the conversational AI technology to be able to probe and prompt on that initial piece of feedback that somebody has given to get a deeper understanding of why people are feeling the way they are, what certain elements of the experience may have you know, been frustrating or delighting them, etc. Effectively, what we're doing, if you think about conversational AI in its broader context, a lot of the time, it's about trying to reduce the cost to serve for contact centers. To say contact centers is one example, you know, it could be hitting a website or whatever that might be, but effectively, a lot of the time, conversational AI is used to ask you a couple of questions and then hit a knowledge management system to get you an answer back about something so that I then don't have to make a call to the contact center or, or speak to someone. And so that might be for, for you, Sam, it might be, you know, what's your last name? What's your order number? And then I can hit that knowledge management system and say, hey, Sam, you're going to be getting your order back next Friday. You know, it'll be delivered to you next Friday. When you get to conversational AI in a research context, we actually don't know what someone is going to say to that first open-ended question. So what we need to be able to do is parse that response into its component parts and then work out how to how we want to prioritise probing and prompting on what they've said to get a deeper level of insight um, on those particular topics. So it's adaptive. The conversational AI has to understand the response, sparse it out, and then figure out which track to go to as it relates to further probing. Absolutely. And the important bit is, and everybody would have obviously tried and used ChatGPT and OpenAI's other tools over the last little while. However, when you, if you think about it as within the research industry, when we're using this technology, we are basically have a set of objectives we are trying to achieve for that project. So what we need to make sure that we have is control over the way that conversation operates to be able to meet the objectives of the study. If you've had a chat with ChatGPT, you've, and you know, there's plenty of documented cases online where the AI can go off and obviously interrogate whatever it sees that someone's sitting. And the example that I like to give, and it's come up before, is say if we're in a retail context and we were doing a project around shopping for chocolate. I might ask Senra about the last time that you went to buy chocolate, what brands did you look at, et cetera, et cetera. And in my open-ended response, I might say, you know, I looked at brand A, I looked at brand B, I liked the price of this, I didn't like the price of that. And then I was there shopping with my mother. Without the control, and you may have seen this, ChatGPT can turn around and go, oh, can you tell me how you feel about your mother? Now, that's really a wonderful question. However, it might not be relevant. But yeah, projects you're running. So for us and the application of conversational AI research, it's about how do we put controls over the top of you know, the system effectively to be able to help prioritize what we want to probe and prompt on to elicit more feedback. Got it. I keep hearing about narrow AI, which is more vertically focused versus more broader, let's say, applications such as ChatGPT. How would you classify your approach? It actually varies based on, you know, even what we've just said there. A lot of our projects obviously would be narrower in scope. We are trying to control the conversation based on that set of specific objectives. 
However, there are plenty of applications that we're using across programs with clients where we need a much broader view of what is going on. If you think about the application of conversational AI in, say, brand health or brand tracking type studies, certainly we can use it to understand the perceptions of different brands, right? And that might be narrow in scope and more controlled in the conversation. However, one of the things that our clients are really latching onto is more broadly understanding contextually what is going on with people's lives within that particular category or whatever it might be that may be influencing their results. Could be societal change, regulatory change, cost of living pressures, all of these things. Then you don't know what's going to come up. And so having that much broader, unsupervised, if you like, in terms of having a, you know, the controls over the top of the conversation can be really helpful as long as you've then got the kind of text analytics tools to be able to help with auto coding and, and everything else off the back of that. Break it down for me. How does this actually work? Because everybody talks about training sets of data, right? Like having a base of knowledge to be able to then formulate responses. How does it work for you guys? You have a new, let's say you have a new client, right? That comes to you and says, I really want to, you know, improve my cost to serve in the CPG category. And let's say it's a category you guys have never worked on. How does that work? Yeah, so I will go back to first principles around obviously setting up a project. But if you think about conversational AI as effectively delivering you qualitative at scale, right? You are obviously then needing to go back to what are the key things you're trying to achieve with the project? What are the outcomes you're looking to deliver, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's no different if you think of it in that particular part of the survey, probably 80% of our projects, 90% are still using conversational AI embedded within a broader quantitative survey. We've got some other applications that are more end-to-end, just mini depth interview. If you think about it, your moderator, if you're running a qualitative project. So you need to effectively brief, if you like, the conversational AI. So what we do to start with is we build a model of effectively think about a bit like a topic, subtopic, keyword type structure where you're thinking about what are the areas that I want to investigate and what might people say in response. Now, we've got some tools within our platform that kind of shortcut that process, you know, dictionaries and things like that. And we've been you know, bringing in some UI that's specifically jumping off the back of some of the more recent developments in large language models to set those models up. We could also ingest data into the platform and basically use that as the basis to that kind of model, if you like, to have those controls. And that would be step one. Step two then is basically thinking about how you want to prioritize what we want to probe and prompt on. There might be things to you that are more important or things that you know that certain subgroups might raise, like smaller populations may talk about that we want to make sure we prioritize if they're raised. So you've got to have then the control over how you probe and prompt, how long you want the conversation to go on for, et cetera. So that's really not that difficult to set up at all. And we would be saying that, you know, in a matter of hours, we could have a model up and running. You're often fitting that within a broader scripting of a survey or whatever. So it doesn't really slow down the time of getting a project up and running. And you don't even have to have a perfect model, to be honest, because once the project gets into field, if people start talking about things that aren't in the model, our platform will identify the fact that, well, there's these things that people are talking about that aren't in the model. Do you want to add them in? And you just got that control of saying yes or no. So it's a really steep learning curve when you're getting a project going if you've missed things out. And it really levels off quite quickly to have that mature model with which you're running your project. 
Very cool. My understanding is that large language models are obviously incredibly powerful. But when we're doing research, we're talking to different demographics, right? Ethnicity, age, gender. Is the language adjusted depending on who is responding to make it more relevant to them? So a couple of different scenarios, I think, that you've spoken about in there. So certainly conversational AI can work in different languages, specifically. We run multi-country studies where the chat will be in uh, the language that is relevant for the respondents in that scenario. In terms of the way that the chat behaves for subgroups within a study, say if we were sticking within one language, say it was English, and we're looking at younger participants versus older participants, there are some things that you can do to try and adjust that chat. But typically what we find more broadly is that our clients are looking to set up a persona, if you like, of that chat based on the topic of discussion or the category or whatever that might be and have that tone of the conversation throughout to all respondents. Yeah. So we were running a project recently with a client up in Asia in the kind of, let's call it the personal care category for want of a better term. And they are wanting to, you know, use the chat to have a consultation that you might similarly have with a real human in life. You know, think about whether you're injured and maybe you're going to see a physiotherapist or whether you're going to see your hairdresser or you're going to get your nails done or something like that. And you think about the persona that person might have when they're asking you how you're feeling or what you need help with. We can set up that kind of persona around the chat to behave in the same way. And I must say that, you know, the beauty of some of what OpenAI has come out with recently is those advancements in the complexity and ability of large language models is what's really letting us get to that stage and really creating different tones and things within those conversations. It's highly nuanced. Yeah, absolutely. So Chris, I know you guys have done some research just for the betterment of society, let's say, and you had some interesting findings in using this approach. And I thought it's worthwhile highlighting topics and responses that you got that might have been different than if you did, had somebody actually intervene and talk to people about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're referring to there is our private thoughts initiative that we've been running here in Australia. And so that started off in maybe the beginning of last year around a study we ran around sexual attitudes. And then we've expanded out to do a project on death and dying and around also around gut health. The premise of setting this you know, series of projects up was really about trying to understand whether people will open up to a bot more so than they would open up to a moderator, a typical moderator in a focus group or depth interview type setting. And I'm not saying for one search, we run a lot of qualitative research, right? So this isn't about replacing, this is a new methodology allowing you to scale some of this, but certainly some of these topics are quite sensitive and it would often take even a skilled moderator time to warm up the respondent to get to a point of being able to elicit a decent uh, level of feedback. And so if you think about that, from that perspective, trying to scale those types of qualitative projects from a cost and a time perspective is difficult. So we put our conversational AI companion to work to really get into, you know, that sexual attitudes one as an example, understand people's thoughts, perceptions, experiences, et cetera, around those. And the non-judgmental nature of the chat meant that people really opened up immediately and we were receiving eight, four pages of feedback back from people around, you know, some quite upsetting, concerning, you know, caring situations that they were in, partners who might have been 
you know, quite ill and what that's done to their sexual health. On death and dying, obviously, you've got people who are nearing end of life and families who are trying to cope. And so really that non-judgmental nature of the chat has meant that we've been able to really elicit a lot of really rich feedback from which we can help the organisations, the non-profits that we're working with, you know, understand what to do to support people in these kinds of scenarios. That for us was obviously one example. And the similar, if you go across to, to corporate land and the agencies we work with, it's the same scenario, right? That non-judgmental nature of conversational AI. And actually, if you think about it, it takes away from what can often be the rigidity of a typical server. Yes, because suddenly people can talk about what's important to them about the experience, not just answering closed-ended questions in phone frames, right? I think it's allowing, it's creating that meaningful engagement, letting people open up and just share what's important about that particular thing. Yeah, I totally agree. It makes a lot of sense. It also speaks to the fact that people just want to be heard in a non-judgmental way. It speaks to society a bit as well. Okay, so also, I think you had mentioned, Chris, that the rest of the organization is using open AI tools to improve the research process. Can you just share a little bit about what, what you guys are doing there in the research and consulting side? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, once you've collected this open-ended feedback from a conversation, you then have to think about how we're going to analyze it. Right? And if you think about it this way, if you think about quantitative survey data, you know, it's often a bunch of binary results, right? Zeros and ones, code frames and things like that. Conversations are a bit like a block of Swiss cheese, right? Because they can take all matter of different paths, depending on, you know, what my initial response is to that open-ended question. So then from that perspective, you need then the sort of conversational analytics tools to be able to analyze that data and bring that back together. And think of it as prompt and response pairs. Because you need to not only think about what the respondent has said, but what they've been probed and prompted on to be able to elicit that feedback. So our teams are basically using our text analytics tools around, you know, if you think about sentiment scoring around a conversation, the conversation can be quite long. So some of them might be, you know, positive, some might be negative, some might be mixed um, in its response. So you need to be able to think about how you're going to analyze that data. Our teams are looking at we create some analysis called differentiating terms where we're looking at two subgroups and actually what's driving the differences between their ratings based on what they've said within their open-ended responses. That can be the, typically the most requested from our clients in terms of understanding uh, what's going on in the text. But outside of the text analytics itself, our teams are using OpenAI's tools to help summarise some of the open-ended feedback and shortcut that time to insight. So there's some things that you can do now. Now, I would stress, I would never advise anyone to just throw open-ended feedback into OpenAI's tools. Don't read it. Take the summary that it gives you back for granted because you are going to get asked by your, you know, by your client, whether it's an internal statement or external, around some of the specific open-ended feedback that's been received. So you still need to know you're done. But what it's doing is it's shortcutting the time for you to start to understand what's going on within the data so you can use that time to think about if this is what's going on, what are my recommendations? What are those commercial outcomes we're trying to drive and, and therefore what should we do with it? From that perspective, you know, we might be doing things like summarizing the differences between detractors and promoters in an NPS type program. Or we might be asking in a sensory test, 
we might be trying to understand, you know, a summary of what people like and don't like about a particular formulation or comparatively, how do people think about a new formulation versus a current? Create brand personas. Think about we might be asking questions in a brand tracker around literally personifying that brand and being able to use these tools to actually create those summaries for you. The big caveat on all of this and one of the things that's really close to our heart is data privacy. Yes. Yeah, so don't just think about, sure, some of these are panel respondents, right? And you, know, you might be having a conversation. For you being based in the US, SEMA, it might be less of an issue. But for some of us in other markets like Australia, when you're using these tools, your data's going offshore. So we need to think about even whether it's aggregate data that we're using to try and create summaries or it's individual's information, we need to make sure we're providing the transparency and choice with our clients about whether we're putting data into these systems and what data is going in. So the same with overnight or the last couple of days, you would have seen some stories around OpenAI coming out with Code Interpreter and talking about the ability to feed data in to create different summaries for you, different visualizations, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like it will be an awesome tool currently based on, you know, looking at a lot of using Python. But for us, we've got to think about this is our client's data. So if we put in code interpreter as an example, where is that data going and are we making the right decisions? And who has access to it? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. I actually think there needs to be more education around that. I think people are still starry-eyed about the results of what they're getting back versus, you know, what are they putting in and who are they giving license to access it? Absolutely. To be fair to OpenAI, I guess their tie-up and investment from Microsoft, they are opening up their tools through the Microsoft Azure platform, et cetera. And I guess that's great for people who are working within those environments. And there are obviously controls over the top of that and requests back to OpenAI around them not using your data to improve models, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all great. But still, you've got that kind of offshoring, onshoring of in data in transit, you need to consider for your clients and whether that sits within, you know, we're looking back at our contracts and saying, are we able to do some of this stuff or not? And how can we have conversations with clients to avail ourselves of these tools? And it's contracts with the clients, but then it's the clients' contracts with the, their consumers and their customers, right? So it's the entire stakeholder chain that has to be considered. Even panels, Seema as well, right? Yeah. If we as an agency are using panel providers, customers, members to run studies and then we're having conversations with OpenAI and it's going into a particular region, maybe it's a panel in Europe. From a GDPR perspective, look, they do have access to those models and whatnot through Azure and whatnot up in Europe. But if suddenly you were sending it off to the US, does that constitute an issue? And I think we need to really get together as an industry and work out the way that we deal with this. That is actually eye-opening. I had not considered by region, there's different data privacy laws. And to your point, there's data in transit all the time now with OpenAI. And how do we manage to that? And it's interesting. When I think about that, it's almost like, where do you go where you have the lowest taxes? Go there first. No, I'm just joking. Okay. I live in New York, so obviously I don't live by that. So Chris, tell me, what is the role of humans as it relates to research in the future? Your perspective, you might or might not know, but just obviously you think about it, right? A lot. So if you think about some of the examples that I've given throughout, whether it's summarizing data or whether it's trying to make sure that you're reaching the objectives of the project, we as humans have a massive role to play throughout 
this process. What we're able to do is there are things that have taken us a long time previously, but now we can utilize these tools to shortcut the time spent on some of those more mundane tasks and then really spend more time, whether it's on the agency side, intimately understanding our clients' organizations and their business problems, that we can then obviously be more commercially focused and making the right recommendations to them, et cetera. Broadly speaking, the role of getting the design right in the first place, really nailing the business problem that you're trying to solve so that you can design the research in the right way is critical. It's not going to go away. There can be some tools that can shortcut different things. Like if for a less experienced researcher thinking about a particular methodology, maybe it's around developing a customer value proposition. They could use BT's tools to understand what are the key elements of a customer value. So that can help you shortcut some of those things. But in the first instance, understanding that problem. And then through the design process, if you're using conversational AI, making sure that you're designing that model that drives, you know, the controls around the conversation that will drive that chat, how you want to probe and prompt on that conversation. And then at the other end, when you're getting the data out, there are already many tools on the market that aren't AI-based that help you shortcut some of that analysis. And AI is going to only supercharge some of that stuff. But that's then going to give you time to sit back and go, okay, so what is this telling me? What do I therefore need to do with it? What do I need to liaise with my internal or external stakeholders? Say, this is what we need to do with the information. And then we can focus on actually implementing initiatives to improve the experience or grow the brand or improve the product. That for me is we've still got a massive role to play, but I would say that people should be embracing these tools and working out how they can help them deliver efficiencies within the type of work that they do. Yeah, I almost see the role of research like humans being more as like a private investigator, right? You get all the inputs officially to you. You're connecting the dots and threading the story together to be able to really understand what's the recommendation, what's the decision, and where do you go from there? And it's interesting as we talk about that, it does make me think as an industry, when we recruit people in, are we looking for different skill sets, right? Because it's very different. Before it was detail-oriented, quantitative, qualitative, right? You have to understand numbers, statistics, this and that. As we think about the future, are there different skills that we might want to emphasize going forward? I agree. I think that a few years ago, and I think where these tools will help open up, right? Especially if you go in the research industry and you say on the agency side, there's always been this tension between you know getting a skilled researcher with you know great foundations in research versus having someone who's got probably got more industry knowledge and commercial understanding of an industry but may not have the research skill. Challenge within there has been things like you might have junior researchers reporting into an industry expert who then feel they're not able to get the coaching and mentoring around methodology from the industry expert. Or you bring the industry expert in and they're not able to run research projects because they don't have the skill. That's understandable, right? You're trying to create a diverse group to drive an organization or support a client. I think some of these tools will actually help come back to that idea of being able to successfully deliver that combination and that diversity, say, within a portfolio team within an agency or within an insights team within an organization where people don't necessarily have to have those same skills. And I think that has been a challenge in the past because of the nature of some of the work, you know, inside professionals do. But I do think this will, you know, some of the tools that are coming out now will help open up those opportunities. I agree with you. 
Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Very insightful discussion. And obviously, I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Data Gurus podcast brought to you by Infinity Squared. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tired of market research solutions that put your project in a box? At Paradigm Sample, we approach market research support with customized and consultative solutions. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we're ready to assist. Let us know your needs, and we can customize a solution just for you. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com.